Let me encourage you more generally in the context of Nehemiah, in your personal reflections on it, to reflect on the uh, apparent coincidences as we turn to different chapters of God's Word in relation to the circumstances we find ourselves in. These Bible books are chosen some time in advance, and the Sundays plotted out, uh, and then events overlap on top of them. So, for example, next Sunday, we'll turn to one of the great prayers of confession of sin. And this would be an ideal opportunity for us as a church to corporately confess our sin. Yes, to confess the sins of God's people in our wider context, but to confess our own sin that if there is double-mindedness in our hearts, then we repent of it and humbly come before our God. And then on the 5th of March, God willing, we turn to chapter 10 of Nehemiah, which is God's people renewing their covenant pledge to God. It is a very general chapter, but there are some specific issues within it where God's people are called to specifically renew their covenant. And the heart of the covenant renewal in Nehemiah 10 is a renewed commitment amongst the people to the institution of marriage given to the people by God. Now, I want you to reflect on these issues and all that else is going on, and just quietly to connect in your minds that God is speaking to us clearly and that God is in all of this clearly. But the primary response to all of that, and I always see it when I say that and feel it like you do, the primary response to all of that is that it, is it humbles us. It makes us seek to repent. It makes us contrite. It makes us afraid of God almost and yet to trust him very deeply and very lovingly. Now today, chapters 7 and 8, a great section in Nehemiah. Under Nehemiah's leadership, the city wall around Jerusalem has been rebuilt in double-quick time, 52 days. This past week, we spent three days in York. We did all the standard stuff, including walking around the city walls, Um, I tried to engage various people in conversations in our family about Nehemiah. (laughs) 52 days, when you walk around these walls, you think, gosh, it's a lot of work and energy they put in. But it's done. The work is done. But the work of spiritual reformation has only just begun. So chapter 7 and verse 1. When the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and gave gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed... I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. While they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. 
Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And then in verses 7 to 65, a long list of names. Let's pick it up at uh, verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and they obviously loved their donkeys, 6,720 of the little creatures. Now, some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor, that's Nehemiah, gave to the treasury 1,000 darics of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 miners of silver. And some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 darics of gold and 2,200 miners of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 darics of gold, 2,000 miners of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water grate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashum, Hashbana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamim, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masai. I'm running out of steam with these. Let's go to the end of the list. Help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words 
that were declared to them. Amen, and may God bless to us his living and his inspired word. Well, let's pray together. Father, there is so much good stuff here, so many principles for spiritual renewal and reformation, so much that steadies us, so much that guides our hand. We pray that, like the people that day, we would all be attentive to the Word of God, that we would listen for your voice, that we would be sent on our way with contrition, yes, but with rejoicing and steadied by it all. We pray, Lord, that the resonances from then to now would be crystal clear to us. We pray that we would apply the words of God well and that we would all understand. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, a number of headings on the inside of the service sheet to help us. I'm going to race through chapter 7 and then slow down in chapter 8. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. I've given these verses the title, Leaders Appoint Godly Leaders. And Nehemiah is for sure a gifted leader. He is used by God, but the book of Nehemiah, in spite of its name, is no more about him than a book like Daniel is about Daniel. The book of Nehemiah is a book about God and how God builds his kingdom. Leaders through history play their part, but God goes on and builds his kingdom beyond their lifetimes. Nehemiah is a good leader because he leads under God and seeks only the glory of his God and the building of God's kingdom. And one expression of Nehemiah's humble leadership under God is that he is willing to share leadership with others and to appoint leaders in his stead. And in terms of sharing leadership, much of the second half of the book focuses on Ezra. Nehemiah, the gifted strategist, steps aside to let Ezra, the gifted preacher, teach the people the Word of God. But here the focus is appointing leaders in his place, and there is also a practical reason, as Nehemiah will soon have to return to Persia and his duties as cupbearer to the king. He wants to leave the work in Jerusalem in safe hands. The mark of a good leader is to ensure that the work that follows them is done better almost than the work that they led. And so he appoints his brother Hanani, first mentioned in chapter 1, verse 2, and Hananiah, a military commander in charge of Jerusalem's citadel or castle, to have charge over Jerusalem. Now, we don't know precisely what their roles were. Hanani, probably administrative. Hananiah, probably uh, military. (laughs) I was uh, uh, amused by a comment in a Bible commentary that because they almost had the same name forevermore in Jerusalem, there would be great confusion. 
the fact they had the same name, what it does for me is it authenticates the authenticity of these accounts. Now, in terms of application here, leaders appoint God the leaders. There are many lines we could take. So within a local church like Chalmers, equipping and enabling others to lead is important. Now, that may be elders or deacons or small group leaders in churches, giving them responsibility to use their God-given gifts. And also within a local church like Chalmers, there is the need for succession planning. I'm not making any points or hints by this. It's just the right application. So many churches are built around the personality, the particular gifts or vision of a charismatic leader. Sometimes that is the fault of the leader. Sure sign, if it is, is that they appoint people to work with them who are significantly less gifted than they are, whom they can control. Or simply that they won't step aside holding on far too long to leadership. Sometimes, though, it is the fault of a congregation who expect far too much of their leaders and who push back against the leader's vision to see them equipped and leading in ministry. We've, uh, on the staff team, had some conversations with someone who may come and train here from the States sometime down the track. And he comes from Bethlehem Church in Minneapolis, where Mark and Camilla Batluck are members, and John Piper was the minister of the church. And I asked Mark, when I Skyped him most recently, how is Bethlehem, after John Piper, this greatly gifted leader, has stepped aside? And Mark said to me, stronger than it has ever been, because of the quality of his investment in a succeeding generation, and because he, gifted man as he is, Piper, always, always led that church under the leadership of Christ. That was a wonderfully heartening comment uh, to hear. Now, I guess a broader application is the need in every generation, particularly from leaders, to look to the next generation, identifying, appointing, and training future leaders. And having done so, let them lead. Let them lead when they are at the height of their ability and energy. And these uh, applications are all over the New Testament pastoral letters. To Timothy, Titus, appoint leaders for churches. Now, returning to Hananiah and Hanani, what's as important as their giftedness is the kind of people they were. Now, just look at that with me. They are, verse 2, faithful and God-fearing The word translated faithful means trustworthiness or integrity. What does integrity mean? Integrity means that who you are in private is the same as you are in public. Now, no one matches up perfectly. But if there is a mismatch that is significant, there is a lack of integrity in public leadership. The point, I think, is that someone who is privately what they are publicly can be trusted in a leadership role. If that's not the case, if the public face is so very different from the private face, there is a real risk in the end, and the church is full of examples of this, of leadership failure. 
So if you are a leader here, take note. Secret sins that are allowed to take root will very often in the end bring leaders down. And the consequences of that can be catastrophic. Now, the second attribute highlighted is that they are God-fearing. Someone who is God-fearing is humble before God. They recognize that their leadership is under God's leadership and authority, and so they don't lord it over people. Rather, they lead with humility, with a servant heart, listening to the wisdom of others. But it doesn't mean they're soft. Someone who is God-fearing fears God more than they fear anyone or anything. And so, trusting in God, they are strong and zealous to do what is right, whatever the consequences. Now, the applications here are obvious but challenging. The New Testament is consistent in its emphasis on the importance of Christian character, both for appointing leaders and maintaining leaders. 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and your doctrine. Now, the reference in verse 4, you see it there, is significant. The city has not yet been repopulated. And while the temple under Ezra and the wall under Nehemiah had been rebuilt, much of the rest of the city including people's houses, were still in ruins. It's at this juncture, before the city is repopulated, that Nehemiah instigates the key spiritual priorities of gathering the people under the Word, urging them to pray, and renewing their covenant with the Lord. In some ways, I have wondered over the past months, in the long months of waiting to find an answer to the question that we were all looking for, when will we find a building that is a base for gospel work and vision? Just what God uh, was doing in our hearts during these months and, in fact, years of preparation. Has He been giving us time to think through and now recommit to the authority and priority of the Word of God in the church, the need to pray in confession, the need to renew our covenant with the Lord. These things matter far more to the Lord than us finding a building in Morningside. These things mean that the building we have found will be well used for the gospel. Now, just before we turn to 8, 1 to 12, just a comment on 7, 5 to 65. I wonder if anyone's ever read that in church before. I occasionally see some of you Hebrew scholars wincing at my wanton uselessness when it comes to Hebrew pronunciation. Um, There's lots we could say here. Verse 5, 
the beginning of verse 5, Nehemiah says, God put it into my heart. How do you know if God is guiding you? There's a great talk we could have on that. The best answer I can give to that is that you do God's will. How do you know God's will? You obey his word. How do you know God is in it? You do what he says you should do. The list here is 70 years old. It's Ezra's list. Why does Nehemiah use an old list? I think to just give continuity. It's just a sharp reminder here that this list was compiled 70-odd years earlier. They're only now beginning to gather under the word. That's two generations in the ancient world. The list is full of different people who do different things. That's applied in the New Testament to the diversity of gifts in front of me here that churches work when we all play our part. The most important thing we can say about this list, however, is that it's a list of real people. And in the end of the day, spiritual reformation is not about programs, plans, strategies, visions, buildings, anything else. It's about changing people's lives. Spiritual reformation is about the reformation of people's lives. Spiritual growth. Spiritual life. These people in that list, and their children and their grandchildren, who gathered that day, chapter 8, verses 1 to 12, under the Word of God, were no different from you and I. And they looked around and they saw these walls rebuilt. And we look across in our mind's eye to that nice new building. But what was really going on in their hearts was a reformation as they recommitted to the Word of God, as they recommitted to praying, as they recommitted to a covenant loyalty, a covenant commitment to their God. 766 to 73, giving financially to the work. Uh, Verse... uh, it's not very PC, verse 17. Nehemiah just uh, includes a little illustration of just how much he gave. What, is, what do we make of that? Well, probably the book of Nehemiah wasn't written by him. It was written by Ezra. There is nothing to question Nehemiah's integrity. I think it's just a little insight here into integrity of leadership, that those in leadership must lead by example. And there's a practical aspect here. You can't build the walls without cash. And whatever else they gave. I don't really know what uh, um, some of the things they gave are. Somebody could enlighten me afterwards. But they gave their money for the work. And uh, Scripture is never ashamed of that. Now, to 8, 1 to 12, the critical section in the book or one of them. Everything in 8, 1 to 12 takes place in one day, the first day of the seventh month. Verses 1 to 3, let's read them. All the people gathered, chapter 8, verse 1, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And uh, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water grate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And you need to get in your mind here a lot of people. 
maybe 40-odd thousand people. So think of a, a big space in Edinburgh, Princess Street Gardens, say, full of people, or Murrayfield uh, Stadium, something like that. And all the people gathered, this amazing day of Bible reading and teaching, characterized by a remarkable seriousness and joy before the Word of God. The point is, you cannot have spiritual reformation without the centrality of the Word of God. Spiritual reformation is not about vision, in the end, strategy, and programs. It is about the transformation of people's lives, and that happens through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Now, what is meant here by the book of the law of Moses that Ezra read and spoke from? Well, these are the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and that's what God's people had then as the Word of God. It's what God had given them, that He might command them or lead them. And for us in the church, the Word of God means the whole Bible, God's full and final and sufficient revelation. You cannot have spiritual reformation without the centrality and authority of the Word of God. Let me draw out some principles. You'll see four on the sheet there. Firstly, the centrality and authority of the Word of God in the church. Now, once again, at this juncture in history, the people of God recognized the centrality and authority of the Word of God in the church. Now, by recognition, I guess they always had where you to ask them. But they really did recognize it here and now at this point of history. What had put them into exile was the precise opposite of what is happening here. They had marginalized the Word of God. They had rejected its authority, its central place in their lives as a community and as individuals. They had set it aside as the supreme rule of faith and life. And now through this process of spiritual reformation, it is back in the center, the supreme authority. Now, that's clear from the whole drama of the scene. But look at some of the details with me. Verse 4, Ezra, the scribe, the preacher, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood the leaders of God's people. Ezra and the leaders are on a raised platform made for the purpose. Now, this is not to give Ezra and the leaders prominence. It is to give the Word of God prominence. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. The Word of God, central, and the supreme authority 
And when the Word of God is central and the supreme authority, then God is central and the supreme authority. And so the logic, verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their heads. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The people were not looking up to the preacher, but to the Word of God and the God whose Word it is. So imagine in your minds Ezra standing on that platform, lifting up the Word of God. People were not looking to him, but to the Word of God in his hands. And beyond the word to the God whose word it is. And they worshipped the God of his word. And that principle never changes. When the church, whether a local church or the church on a bigger canvas, keeps the word of God central and submits to its authority, then it is faithful to its calling as the church of Christ. And it can expect growth and progress. But when a local church or the church in a nation marginalizes the Word of God and puts itself in authority over the Word of God, all it can expect is judgment from God. And yet the pressure of the culture and loss of confidence in the power of the gospel will often cause the church to turn away from the Bible and from God. When we were in York this week, we went to York Minster, which is magnificent. And we had a tour which was essentially about the Reformation. And what had happened in the Reformation to the cathedral is all the icons and the gold leaf and the paintings on the wall were washed clean. And the guide showed us a tiny little nook in one of the side chapels, which was the only remaining spot of gold paint left. And then he said, you could view this as desecration of art, But look what else happened. The altar was moved into the heart of the church. And there's the pulpit where the Bible in English was laid. The Word of God in the center of the church. So what is the place of the Word of God in our church life at Chalmers? Is the Bible really central? Is it the supreme rule of faith and life? Now, I hope and pray that it is. But I hope and pray it will remain so. And we must not presume that it will. All it takes is 
preacher or a minister to lose confidence. All it takes is a small group leader to put themselves in authority over parts of the Bible. The second principle, the church gathered under the Word of God. Who gathered under the Word that day? Ezra, verse 2, the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read it facing the square before the water grate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and all who could understand. All who could understand, presumably a reference to children of a certain age. Here's Don Carson speaking on Nehemiah at a conference for ministers. He's a great leader of the world church. And yet, let me encourage you, took time last week to write me a long letter explaining all that he is praying for us as a church. He is a very emotional man when he speaks. He is utterly sincere, even though he has a sinful heart. And he said this at a conference that I always remember, and I found the tape and quote it to you. You have been in the ministry, he's speaking to ministers, long enough to have received your share of commendations and rebukes. But if some dad comes up to me with tears in their eyes and says my 14-year-old listened right through the sermon and was gripped by it, then that really moves you. Isn't that what we want? The Word of God gripping a whole new generation. So maybe we should be less cautious, less reticent about encouraging our young people to listen to preaching. And we can be silly about that, forcing them to sit through sermons as long as this one. And then they vote with their feet and walk away from the church. But there is a point when it is appropriate for children and teenagers to listen to preaching because our confidence is that God will speak to them. Now, the principle of God's people gathered together under the Word of God is vitally important. In the life of a local church, corporate meetings of the church family are central. We call them services. My Bible commentary at this point says, how do you illustrate this? He's obviously not a preacher. Here's an illustration. That's what we're doing. Now who? This is central to what it means to be a church. We see it right from the beginning of the church, Acts 2. The people of God gather together. We call them services under the Word of God. In the life of a local church, corporate meetings of the church family are central, like this, and central to these corporate meetings is the Word of God. Why? Because the church is ruled by Christ through His Word. If you take the Word of God out of the heart of these corporate meetings of a church, you take the heart out of the church. 
It's a little bit like an ocean liner sailing through the sea. And if you take the Word of God out of the heart of a corporate meeting of the church, it's almost as if there is no one steering the ship. And the ship can go left or right at the vagaries of the wind. It can hit icebergs. It can sink. Now, there are many other important aspects to church meetings, for sure, such as singing, praying, the sacraments. But central to it all is the church gathered under the Word. Now, most churches would say, we would say, I guess, here, that the Word of God is central to our church meetings on Sundays. But is it? How do you know if it is? Well, lots of reasons. Because the preachers cut straight with the Word, they are not ashamed, 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly handling the Word of truth. No spin, no distortion, no compromise. And the clearest evidence that the Word of God is central to a church meeting is that in these meetings God speaks. The Holy Spirit is at work. And that our lives are changed. Because the Word of God is able to make somebody sitting here wise for the first time to salvation. The Word of God is able to equip Christians in this room right now for every good spiritual work and to bless us and to encourage us and to strengthen us. Let me expand a bit with a third principle. The Word of God is proclaimed in the church. Look with me at the description of what happens. Verse 2, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. The Word of God is read. Verse 7, the priests helped the people to understand They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. In other words, the Word of God is read, explained, and applied. The aim is that the people understand and therefore live by and obey the Word of God. So look forward to verse 12. All the people went their way because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And the primary New Testament application of this is the preaching or proclamation of the Word of God in the context of these corporate meetings of the church family. And so in 2 Timothy, following his explanation of the power of the Word, Paul charges Timothy to preach the Word. My primary responsibility as minister, under the charge of God, is to preach the Word. And what is preaching? It is to read, it is to explain, it is to apply the Word of God. Now, the fourth and final principle, the church listens attentively and responds appropriately to the Word of God. If it is the responsibility of some to proclaim the Word, It is the responsibility of all, preacher included, to listen attentively and respond appropriately. Sadly, that is not always the case. 
as the word often falls on deaf ears and hard hearts, including sometimes the preacher's ears and the preacher's heart. But when the Spirit of God is at work in a corporate gathering of God's people under the Word, God's people hear God and respond. And so, the end of verse 3, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In our church, we need to pray that preachers will preach clearly and that people will listen attentively. What does attentive listening to God in His Word do? It leads first to praise, verses 5 and 6. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The attitude of the people is reverent praise. Probably this means singing. Praising God is an appropriate response to the word, as is lifting up your hands. The connection between the preaching of the word of God in our corporate meetings and what we sing by way of preparation and response is so important. Second, an appropriate attentiveness to the Word of God leads to contrition, the reference in verse 6 to the people bowing down in worship with their faces to the ground, signifies humble submission before the Lord, and also contrition. The end of verse 9, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And I have to say to you that in my own life as minister at the moment, that the dominant sense I have with all the wonderful things happening around us is contrition, repentance, a consciousness of a lack of integrity. Why has God done this for us? All the people wept. Why are we so gloomy? Because maybe we've had a sight of the real God and it moves us. But Nehemiah gets a grip of them and he says, Look, you need to be joyful. Verses 9 to 12 This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weak. Notice the equation of holiness. And joy. Go your way. Eat the best that Waitrose can give you. Isn't it nice that we're moving close to Waitrose? The bread in Waitrose is really nice. Everything else is, well, not cheap. Do not grieve. For this day... The joy of the Lord is your strength. 
It's not, I think, that the people's humility and contrition under the authority of the Word of God is wrong. There is no sense that their reaction is insincere in any way. There will be plenty of tears next week in chapter 9. I think, though, it's true that we focus perhaps too much on the tough consequences of living by the Word of God, which are real. And it is tough living by the Word of God, as we all know. But we focus far less on the joy and liberation that comes from acknowledging and submitting to its authority. You see, all over the Psalms, a keen, zealous commitment to the Word of God is our delight, is our light. And the final and all-embracing response to attentive listening to the Word of God is simple obedience. Verse 12, all the people went on their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Chapter 8, 13 to 18, we don't have time to look at that. It's the next day the leaders all gather again to study the Word of God. And they read Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they put two and two together and think, we're in the middle of the seventh month. We should be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles to remember how God had provided for us in the wilderness. And so should we be remembering now how God has provided for us on the journey. Now, in conclusion, the big theme of chapters 7 and 8, the centrality and authority of the Word of God. And in a church, locally and nationally, when the Word of God is central at the heart and its authority recognized as God's Word, the supreme rule of faith and life, that church is safe, secure, faithful, and fulfilling its purpose as the true church. Only when the Word of God is central and its authority acknowledged will that church be able to steer a straight course to the storms that assail the church. And so that must be and remain our commitment as a church to the centrality and authority of the Word of God. And if the Word of God has been pushed out of the center of the church, if the church on the broader canvas has put itself in authority over the Word, then we must, in whatever small way we can, do all we can to build for spiritual reformation, to train preachers, to revitalize churches, to plant churches committed to the centrality and authority of the Word of God. I strongly suspect that that is the work of two, three, or four generations. And we are at the foundation stage. But let's 
do all we can to get the Word of God back to the heart of the church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the clarity of this section of Nehemiah, so relevant to our time, to our circumstances. We pray that the Word of God would be central in the life of this church, in our corporate meetings, and in all the other contexts where the Bible is taught. Help us, Lord, to do what we can to keep it such and to recover the centrality and authority of the Word of God in the wider church. Help us, Lord, not to pretend things are not as they are. Help us not to call what is wrong okay. But, Lord, I guess we pray most of all through these days where there is so much to be thankful for that you would humble us humble us under the weight of the holiness of Almighty God and His Word, which is light and joy for our lives. Lord, will you help us this coming week to gather together to pray? Surely, Surely, we can see and respond to the need. All of us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.